It's good to be here today, Father. It's good to be in a place where your glory is held high and your word is taken with great seriousness and great love. And just thank you for the power that is in your word and through your spirit, what it does in our lives and in our hearts, Father. Thank you for those gifts. Thank you for Christ who has purchased this relationship we have with you by grace through faith alone. And Father, we just want to come before you this morning and praise your name and to hear from you. Ask that you would be with Pastor as he teaches and preaches and that may souls be one and believers be encouraged and challenged and exhorted. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, just by way of review, what are some ways we can grow in being more content? We kind of established we aren't born as content people. Paul himself said, I had to learn the art of contentment or the secret of contentment. So what were some of the ways we can grow in being more content? And if you weren't here, don't feel bad. But even if you weren't here, you might have a suggestion, because hopefully we're all growing in that area. Stay in the Word. Stay in the Word would be a good place to be, no matter what the question is. Prayer. And prayer, sure. So those are kind of the, always the two basic things. A couple things that were mentioned were delighting in God, uh, seeking to be more like Asaph, whom am I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. Just asking God for a heart like that. Um, just being thankful, count your blessings. Remember the old song, name them one by one. It will surprise you what the Lord has done. So those were a couple things we, we threw out there. Uh, what were some of the dangers of wanting to get rich that Paul touched on in 1 Timothy 6? It can cause people to wander away from faith. Right, right. What were some other dangers? Maybe we should just read 9 and 10 just to hear how it is not harmless. Um, somebody mm -hmm. read 9 and 10 of 1 Timothy 6, please. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Okay, so any questions on that warning that Paul has? Okay, and then we kind of wrapped up by saying what was, what's the main issue when it comes to money? Not necessarily amounts or some of those other things. What's the, the core issue? It's the root of all evil. Pardon me? It's the root of all evil. It, the, well, okay. What is the root of all evil? Money. Love of money. Love of money. Okay, so not to be picky, but so money itself, you know, I've got some in my wallet right now. It's not causing evil. Um, it's heart. Do I love it? No matter how much I have or don't have, do I love it? So remember what Jesus said about that? 
serve God in money. Right. Want you, the one and hate the other. Exactly. So our hearts are always going to be conflicted by one or the other, and one love will prevail over the other. I remember when I, we first came here, there was a, a guy named John, and um, he told me, now I know why the Bible says no man can serve two masters. And he was trying to keep two girlfriends going at the same time. And, and he said it doesn't work, which was not like rocket science. But, you know, and it's like, that's what Jesus is saying. You, you can't keep a love of money alive and well and a love for God alive and well. One of those is going to suffer. Uh, one's going to have the preeminence. And we want it to be God, obviously. So any comments or questions on what we covered last week about contentment and loving money and the heart? Okay, well, let's keep going in 1 Timothy 6. Would somebody please read 13 through 16? I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to whom be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Okay, thank you. So how long is Timothy to keep the commandment without stain or reproach? Until the appearing of Christ. Okay, and when will that happen according to those verses? At the proper time. Right, and who decides what the proper time is? God. Okay, so let's go to Acts 1. Remember this came up after the resurrection. And Jesus makes it nice and clear. Acts 1, somebody please read 6 and 7. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs of which the Father has fixed in his own authority. Okay, so God's the one who decides when Jesus is going to come back. Our little charts and calculations and the latest news of what's going on in the world isn't what makes it happen. It's God has a date on his calendar already, and it will come exactly on that day. So any questions on that? Okay. Well, Paul launches from there to uh, what we call doxology. He already did that in 117. Remember, he's talking about, um, he, he just couldn't help it. He, he starts off talking about the grace of God in his life and how Christ came to the world to save sinners. And then in 17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. So that's a doxology. It's ascribing glory to God. You know, he's thinking about his own conversion, how God showed grace to him when he was a persecutor and a blasphemer, and he can't help but just burst out, thank you to the Lord. And that's what he does here. He starts talking about Jesus and the good confession and coming, his coming back, um, but before he knows it, he just launches into this ascription of praise to God. So um, let's just look at some of the things it says about God, kind of phrase by phrase. What's the first phrase? 
Okay, so we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're looking specifically at verse 15 and 16 now, where Paul is doing a doxology. What's the first phrase? He who is the blessed and only sovereign. Okay, good. So what does that mean? What does it mean that God is the blessed and only sovereign? I don't know that we really think about it. We, we talk in our church that the blessed means truly happy, but I don't know that we think about God being just truly happy. I think we, or at least in my mind, sometimes inerrant, I think of him as more... Uh, somber, but there has to be this the epitome of true happiness. Um, right, and so the, that's the tricky thing about blessed is it often means truly happy, like Tom just said, and, and obviously God is not grumpy. God is joyful in himself and in the Trinity. Um, and blessed also means the one worthy of blessing. You know, so we're going to be in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is with it. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget none of his benefits. We're, we're not saying, may God be happy. We're saying, God is worthy of thankful praise. So, hard to know which one. I know Dr. Piper points out in, uh, earlier in First Timothy where he says the doctrine or the gospel of the blessed God, it's the God that's happy. And he very well could be right. I don't know. I'm inclined to think, at least in this one, it's that he's the one who's worthy of blessing, but wouldn't die on that hill. So, so God is joyful, and God is worthy to be blessed, and you don't have to pick between the two. Can we go with that? Okay, well, what does it mean that he's the sovereign one? What does sovereign mean? There's nothing and no one outside his rule. Okay, good. So it's the one who has absolute rule over absolutely everything. He is in total control of all things. So let's look at a couple of verses that remind us of that. <coughs> Ephesians 1, 11. Somebody read Ephesians 1, verse 11. Everything is part of his will. You know, there's nothing outside of that. There's no exceptions. God is in charge of everything. So, um, or, and one more, and again, there's lots of verses, but here's two go-to ones. Daniel 4.35. Somebody please read Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Okay. So that's what it means to be sovereign. He, he does what he wants to do everywhere, heaven and earth. Nobody can stop it. 
remember Job 42, verse 2. Uh, o Lord, you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted or frustrated. God always gets his way. <laughs> it always happens according to his plan. Everything is the way God wants it to be. So any questions on the fact that God is the blessed only sovereign? Okay, what's the next phrase? Back in 1 Timothy 6. Okay, good. So what does that mean? Okay, good. Good. So obviously we think of kings like they're at the top of the food chain in a given country, right? And he's the king over all those kings. So he's has authority over all other authorities. He's the highest authority there is. What's the next phrase? Okay, good. So what does that mean? Right, right. God has no beginning and he has no end. Uh, would somebody read Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2? Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, forever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Okay. So that's something you could just kind of blow the circuits of your mind over. You just, you know, sometimes kids say, well, where did God come from or who made God? A, just God is. He always has been. He had no beginning and he will have no end. He just is absolute reality. Um, he lives forever. Um, also, Revelation 4, verses 8 through 11. Revelation 4, 8 through 11. Four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by you, your will, they existed and were created. Okay, so he was and is and is to come, and twice it says, who lives forever and ever. So that's something we need to know about God. And then what's the last phrase, or two phrases? Where does God dwell? Inapproachable light. So we sometimes in, in light inaccessible hid from our eyes. And then what does it say about who has seen him? No one has seen him or can see him. So let's go to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. Somebody read 18 through 20. 
Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Okay, thank you. And then that makes us appreciate John 1.18 even more. John 1.18. Somebody read that. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Okay, so... Um, God has been invisible to us, but remember Jesus will say in John 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus makes the invisible God visible because he's the exact representation of him. So the response to this blessed and only sovereign who's the King of kings and Lord of lords who possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light is to him be honor and eternal dominion. Uh, he's worthy of eternal praise. He's worthy to reign forever. And that's the God we came to worship this morning. That's our Father, if you're a Christian this morning. That's who we came to honor as our Father, this God who is all those things and more. So any comments or questions on that, in a sense, a parenthesis in 1 Timothy 6? I mean, he just, again, it was a spontaneous doxology. He just overflowed out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. It just came out of him um, in that context. Okay, let's read a little bit. The only thing that jumps out at me, Pastor, is at the end of verse 15 it says only sovereign. He's the only ruler. So all those people that try and claim that there are other gods or other things or we all worship the same. God is the only one. And it says that right I mean it's clear and when you go to the next set, king of king, lords of lords, he's lord over all. Right. Think, I mean, it just makes it really clear that he is clearly the only one. And, and so sometimes we get those people that say, well, hey, I've seen God. Well, no, you haven't, because if you had, you'd be dead. So, I mean, it's just all those things that we keep getting inundated from the world that they want to try and take away from the glory of who God is. It's pretty clear right here that they can't take that away. Amen. This is Amen. Amen. You can just remind me of a story John MacArthur tells. Um, a guy came up to him at church and said, uh, the Lord appeared to me while I was shaving this morning. And MacArthur, he said, do you believe me? Um, and he said, well, um, did you keep shaving? He said, yeah. He said, and it wasn't the Lord. <laughs> you know? It's like... Remember, John falls at his feet as like a dead man when the risen Christ appears to him. Uh, or in these verses, God himself says, you can't see me and live. Uh, so to think, yeah, mm, yeah, hi, Lord. Mm. I mean, I stop shaving when my wife is talking to me. Well, alone the Lord appears to me. <laughs> I'm on my face, right? So, yeah, again, let's have proper honor for God and not treat, trivialize him so much or let him be like one of many. He's the one and only. And all others are uh, not worthy to be mentioned. Well, let's read 17 through 19.
instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Okay, thank you. So why might we tend to assume these verses aren't talking to us? Can always find somebody richer than you are. Well, really? yeah, that's easy. Okay. Yeah, I, I think when I was thinking of that question, I, th I think a typical response is, well, I'm not rich. Bill Gates is rich. Jeff Bezos is rich. Um, Elon Musk is rich. They're billionaires. I'm not even a millionaire, so I'm not rich. I'm just a middle-class American. But compared to most of the world and most of human history, we are quite rich. I mean, that's just reality. And so we don't want to be too quick to write these off as like, well, yeah, that's just talking to the big hitters, the deep pocket people, um, and I I'm, I'm get a pass, a free pass here. It's like, if you have all your basic needs met, which Paul said are food and raiment, <laughs> um, you have more than enough, and at, therefore you're in this category. Because in the first century and for most of human history, you're either rich or poor. <laughs> um, there, there wasn't really a middle class. So we are definitely would have been in the rich side, not the poor side of things. So let's just walk through. And um, unless the Holy Spirit specifically says, no, you don't have to worry about these, let's assume he's talking to us, OK? So what are some things those who have uh, more than they need um, called not to do? I have don't be haughty. OK, what does that mean? Yeah, I don't want, I don't want to say it, because I don't know, I don't know what that word means. Okay. <laughs> so change it. Yeah. Okay. Proud, arrogant, yeah. <laughs> puffed up. Um, yeah. So let's read Deuteronomy 8 that warns about that possibility. Deuteronomy 8, would somebody read 11 through 14, and then 17 through 18. Deuteronomy 8, 11 to 14. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Okay, and that's 17 and 18 okay. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So um, in verse 14, your heart will become proud or lifted up, and then in um, 17, your heart might be lifted up saying, I did this. You know, I I built this, I did this, I earned this. It's, it's all about me instead of God gave me what I have. Okay? Um, what's the next other thing we're not supposed to do? 
Not to hope in our riches. Okay, good. Um, and what's the, the phrase he uses for riches? Uncertainty. Uncertainty. So think the stock market, the economy, inflation. It's, it's uncertain, to say the least. Um, Proverbs 23, 4, and 5 has something to say about that. Somebody read that. Proverbs 23, 4, and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth, because concerning enough to be cast, or desist, when your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards the heaven. Isn't that? It does seem about right. <laughs> Isn't that true? Yeah. So don't put your hope in that, because it's going to let you down. Okay, so... What are some things, instead of being proud or fixing our hope in the uncertainty of riches, what are we called to do? So first would be the opposite of that, which is? Set our hopes on God. Okay, good. And Paul already mentioned that in chapter 5, verse 5, about widows fixing their hope in God. Um, so what does it mean to fix our hope in God? What's hope? Belief, okay. And it kind of has a special flavor to it. So a belief about something. Like an expectation of good things. Yeah, good things when? In the future. In the future. So faith, you know, and hope are, have a big overlap, but hope tends to have a future orientation to it. It's I'm trusting God that he will do something good in the future. So anybody know Philippians 4.19 by heart? Okay, let's, let's read it then. <laughs> well, that's a good thing to say. That isn't actually Philippians 4.19, but let, let's read Philippians 4.19 and see how it fits with fixing our hope in God. God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Okay, so what's the verb tense of God supplying? Remember your English grammar? Future. Will supply. It's not saying God has supplied your needs, which he has. We're going to sing this morning, all I have needed Thy hand hath provided, past tense. This is God will provide, which means that's a promise of future good. God's going to keep providing our needs. And fixing our hope on God is trusting that promise is true. God will provide my needs, whether the economy tanks or whether the stock market tanks or Social Security dries up or any of those things doesn't matter. My hope's in God and he doesn't change and so he promised to meet my needs so I'm covered. Okay, does that make sense? And again, that's a fight of faith, isn't it? <laughs> you can get nervous about finances, it's easy to do, but we're going to keep coming back to putting our hope in God, not 
anything else. What else are all of us good or um, rich or maybe not considering yourself rich all called to do according to 1 Timothy 6? Do good. Okay, let's just stop there. Uh, can you think of a verse that says that for all believers? How about Galatians 6, 9, and 10? Galatians 6, verse 9 and 10. So did you hear that? Do good, do good. Don't weary doing good. And this isn't just to the rich say this. This is all believers are called to be part of doing good to everybody, especially God's family. So that's whether you want to say you're in the category of rich or not, we're, we're, we've dropped that now. We're going to look at verses that the same instructions are given to all of us, including, don't you say, fixing your hope in God is... It's okay not to put your hope in God if you're poor <laughs> or middle class. So we don't want to say, well, we don't need to follow that one if we're not rich. And all these are going to be verses about any believer, no matter what your economic status, we're called to do. So we're all called to do good. What's the next thing in 1 Timothy 6? Be rich in good works. Okay. Or abound in good works. Can you think of some verses that talk like that? Okay, how about Ephesians 2.10? So let me look up Ephesians 2, verse 10. Actually, let's start in 8, which you already know. 8 and 9, but let's go into 10. were saved unto good works. Remember when we looked at the Council of Jerusalem, we had that little chart. It's not faith plus works equals salvation. Can't add anything to Christ. And James is about faith minus works. It's not salvation. It's faith yields salvation and good works. It's unto good works. The faith that um, some of the earlier confessions said uh, we are saved by faith alone but the faith that saves is never alone but always accompanied by love and good works so it's a fruit of a changed heart that produces these good works and God designed them before we were even saved before we were even born he prepared them beforehand so he already has designed good works for you to accomplish in your life as a believer which is kind of cool <laughs> You know, he has something 
special for you to do in this world that's a good work or good works. Um, also Titus, which eventually we'll be getting to as we keep going through the pastoral letters, but for now, Titus 3.8 and 3.14. Somebody read those, please. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Okay. So Paul, right after saying it wasn't on the basis of deeds which we did, says those who believe need to be careful to be engaged in this. So again, there's no, you know, what God is joined together, let no one put asunder. We're not supposed to, like, hate on good works because we know some people put their trust in those to get right with God. It's no, we're to be careful to engage in them because that's the fruit of salvation in Christ. Does that make sense? Okay, thank you, Katie. <laughs> sense to Katie. Um, what else are we called to do? Thank you. Anybody think of a verse that kind of goes along with that? How about Hebrews 13, 16? Hebrews 13, verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to Okay, so it's easy to neglect those, and the author of Hebrews is saying don't neglect them because they're pleasing to God. It's not even just it's going to help other people, which it will, but it's honoring to God to do that. And then last but not least, what are all of us called to do in 1 Timothy 6? and ready to share. Right. And then... What's the next phrase? Take hold of what is truly like. Okay, that's an outcome. Storing up, Storing up, treasures. Storing up treasures for when? Uh, the, future. the future. Okay, so what does that remind you of? In okay, so yeah, let's look at Jesus' words in Matthew 6. Matthew 6. Can somebody read 19 through 21, please? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. But where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, isn't that interesting? I think it's intriguing that the order is where your treasure is, that's where your heart goes, and not where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. 
is something worth trying to wrestle with. So any comments or questions on these instructions, which, as we've just seen, apply whether you're rich or not, um, as far as our calling of some things we're to be actively engaged in while we're here. All right, well, let's finish First Timothy. Um, would somebody read 20 and 21, please? So what has been entrusted to Timothy? The gospel. The gospel, right. So in 2 Timothy, chapter 114, he's going to say something similar. Um, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And the treasure is the truth of the gospel that he is been commissioned to, to share. What is he to avoid? <coughs> Empty chairs. Empty chairs, yeah. So it's easy to get in conversations that generate more heat than light, or just you go, well, that was a waste of time after you're done. and saying stay away from worldly empty chatter that doesn't accomplish much, including opposing arguments from what is falsely called knowledge. And what's the outcome of some who go there with falsely called knowledge? They go away from the faith. So we've seen that several times now, remember? Some by love of money have wandered away from the faith. Some by, um, you know, Hymenaeus and Alexander made shipwreck of faith. There's all these casualties in 1 Timothy 6 that Paul's warning, don't be that guy. Don't, don't get caught up in money or false knowledge or all this other stuff that other people all around us are falling like flies. Let's stay true to the gospel be faithful to what's been entrusted to you. Um, keep on the straight and narrow. And um, so that makes sense? So it's, it's, this, is, this is real life. It's, there's real casualties. Um, I was talking to a guy. He's getting his PhD in philosophy itself. He's writing his dissertation on something about the meaning of existence. It's like. <laughs> Okay, dude. Um, <laughs> and he was telling me, you know, we're talking, we're talking, and, you know, he said, well, the way I see it, if Ecclesiastes is right, then there's parts of the Bible that are wrong. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> Your interpretation of Ecclesiastes isn't infallible, and I guarantee you, if it makes something else in the Bible wrong, your interpretation's wrong. And he went around, 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 around. And at one point, I just earnestly warned him as a, I assume a brother, be careful you don't get too smart for your own good. 
And I meant that. He's sporting with all these ideas. Well, yeah, the way I see it, yeah, there's parts of the Bible that are wrong. He's now declaring that. He's got knowledge. He's smarter than everybody else. He's got to work it on a PhD. And it's like, that's scary to me. You know, it's just one more version of deconstructing your faith, right? Well, I used to believe that stuff. You know, I was raised in a church and, you know, believed in all that. But now I know better. I'm enlightened. I know that's whatever. It's like, be careful about knowledge falsely so-called. It's like, it's one more way to be a casualty from the faith. So it does. It does, right. So any comments or questions as we wrap up first to me? What, want to say that for everybody, Karen? <laughs> that falls into the category of what I call educated idiots. Yeah, that would be definitely possible there. All right, so Lord willing, we will start Titus next week, even though Secretary is next in your Bible order in terms of chronological order. Titus is written before 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is the last letter Paul ever writes. So we're going to go to Titus next week, Lord willing, and then we'll end up with 2 Timothy. So let's close in prayer. And I think we'll ask Russ if you would please leave. Father, we thank you that we can set our hope on, on you and rather than what the world has to offer. Thank you that you are uh, certain and sure, and our, our hope is certain and sure because of that. So thank you for the words of encouragement uh, from your word this morning. Fathers, we go to, to worship, and as we uh, sing and pray and hear your word spoken about the one and only sovereign, about the King of kings and Lord of lords, Father, encourage our hearts our hearts and our minds to worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.